As the name implies, managing your message carries with it a lot of managing, and that includes managing others as well as ourselves. Sounds like we might learn something important from one of America's leading executive coaches and an expert on leadership and career development. It's Michael Melcher on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. We're still in the early stages, so you might be a subscriber already and thus returning, or we know there are also lots of new listeners coming in. So to briefly review what this is all about, as I shared in episode zero, the why of the podcast is to offer you a fresh look at messaging and management and to share with you practical ideas for using them to grow your business, because business is much easier when you're a message manager. The management component is absolutely vital, so it's great to welcome one of America's leading executive coaches and leadership experts to the program. Michael Melcher is a partner at Next Step Partners, a firm based in New York and San Francisco. His career has included business, law, and the U.S. Foreign Service. His clients have included Google, Goldman Sachs, Doctors Without Borders, and many others. He is an author, which we'll discuss in some more detail, and is frequently quoted in outlets like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and Fortune. Michael is also for whatever reason, a podcast host. Why in the world would you do such a thing? Um, his the podcast is called the fame. <laughs> <laughs> the, the fame and the fortune. Oh, they just roll in. Michael's podcast is called Meanwhile, a podcast to improve your life. Michael, welcome to the podcast. You don't have to push any buttons or do anything technical today. I'm so relieved to have that freedom for at least one day. So thank you. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> you're, you're subjected to my uh, minimal level of technical competence. I welcome you. We are recording this interview at the very beginning of the dreaded Q4, fourth quarter. <laughs> Organizations are setting their strategic plans and a lot of professionals are setting their own goals and resolutions Goal setting is an issue you deal with a lot as a coach. I read a blog post you did for the New York Times several years ago called, quote here, a year-end review with yourself. Very interesting. So, Michael, could you talk a bit about that concept and if you have any general recommendations about how professionals might approach their goal setting process this time of year? Sure. That was one of my favorite posts. And honestly, I was surprised at the reception and how much resonance there was. So the basic idea is that, you know, this is America. We set lots of goals. We're all into goal setting. We want to get better. We want to improve. We want to grow and so forth. Usually this goal setting is, it's very prospective. It's how do we want to grow and develop and what I want to bring into my life, et cetera. The purpose of the post was to really bring in the idea that we can learn a lot from our own experience. Those experiences can inform the goals. And it's not always obvious what the lessons from the most recent past are. Because we, we live day to day we, or week to week. It's not necessarily an easy thing to take a holistic look about where we are in our lives or in our growth. In a nutshell, 
What this exercise does is it asks you to go over the last 12 months, consult your calendars, revisit what you were doing in February and April and June and so forth, and start jotting down everything that comes up that's significant on a big piece of paper. It might be personal, it might be work, it might be travel, it might be setbacks you had, so on and so forth. Essentially mining the data. And then after you've done that and have a full year view, you start looking at themes. You look at what is really standing out, what calls to you, what gives you good energy, what's better forgotten. And out of that, you'll typically have a set of key or peak experiences or particularly meaningful moments. You identify those and you think about all right, what does this imply about how I want to grow going forward? And then the last part of it is you turn it into goals that relate to that forward ambition. But I think what people find so compelling about this is that, frankly, we we forget a lot of what's happened and we think more about what we should do or we should have liked rather than what we want to do and what we actually have liked. That makes a lot of sense, Michael. And I was thinking back, this is an article I saw recently in Harvard Business Review, and I've referred to it in a couple of other episodes just because it was such a basic idea and very compelling. The authors had gathered, I think, 27 larger company CEOs, and they asked their executive assistants who dealt with their schedules to track how they spent their time over about a three-month period. And then they reported this back. And they were executives that I think were in an executive management program at Harvard. They were working very closely with these individuals. And the, the thing as a you know, marketing and growth person that stood out to me was that this group on average only spent 3% of their time with customers. And so you know, we talked a lot <laughs> of the implications of that. People just naturally get pulled in lots of different directions. And so it was interesting to go back and, as you say, look at the calendar where you're actually spending your time, how much was with email and how much was with internal meetings and how much was actually with customers or the board or colleagues or your family or outside pursuits. Yeah. And so um, I bet that's a real eye opener for a lot of the people, either your peers and friends or, or the clients that you work with. It is an eye-opener in a really positive way. It's not so much that it identifies like, oh my God, I you know, wasted four months out of the 12. It's more, oh, I kind of forgot about that experience. Or, oh, now I see that I was really coming out of a difficult place and I dealt with it pretty well. Or, hmm, I met some really cool people last spring and I would really like to keep them in my life to a greater degree. The way I look at it is that we all have filters. We filter some things in, we filter some things out. And this is a way to overcome those filters for the purposes of the exercise and have a, a really a broader set of data to work from. I would imagine from that, from what you were just talking about, because it would be really easy, and I probably have fallen prey to this myself. You look back on it, I would just beat myself up. I wasted time or I was really inefficient or priorities that I had set, I didn't really seem to follow. How can we make sure that we focus on, as you say, the things that we found valuable and meaningful and they give us energy rather than this getting into a self-loathing sort of exercise and, and say, I'm going to change everything next year, but really build upon the positive parts, not let that descend into something negative. It's interesting what you just said, because maybe self-loathing experiences are based on goals that we weren't really all that attached to in the first place. <laughs> we thought we should do them, but they weren't necessarily what 
made our hearts sing or what have you. In a way, this exercise is an attempt for greater authenticity to really touch onto what is really important to you and what is really meaningful to you. And then how do you want to build on that? And if you build on those things, I think you're more likely to be successful in achieving these goals. Interesting take on that, Michael, very much in terms of not letting the goals be something that you think you should, giving the air quotes here, should be doing either maybe as a function of what peers are doing or your stage in your professional life, et cetera, but more the things that work for you, that give you energy, that have meaning and value for you. I'd like to chat a little bit as well about for the professionals, whether they be individual professionals, entrepreneurs, their managers, their organizational leaders, and the skills that they have in developing relationships and working with others, because I know that's a a large part of what you do as well. Looking across industries, and I've had clients in all sorts of different industries, and to varying degrees, they all seem to be impacted by the so-called war for talent. In other words, it's just hard to find people. We're in historically low unemployment rates. The skill sets, whether you consider them technical skills or the so-called softer skills, it is a struggle to find the right people and to hold on to them. There's a lot of pressure on executives and frontline managers to create the atmosphere that's attractive to the kinds of people that they're really looking for for long-term growth. It's a broad question, but what are you seeing in terms of the conversational skills, the relationship building behaviors that leaders need today? It's interesting that we use this phrase war for talent, which implies that we have to compete against others or beat others in order to acquire the talent that we need. And you're right, though, most organizations at this point, their core asset is their people, their information-based companies and organizations. So having capable people and having people who can grow is the number one asset. It's no longer the case that if you control some key capital assets, you're going to be successful. You really have to succeed by finding and retaining and helping grow the right people. I think that the number one differentiator here is any company's or manager's ability to help others develop, to create conditions for success, to create an environment where they can grow. People leave for a lot of different reasons. People come to new companies for a lot of different reasons. They can put different labels on it. But I do think that most people want to grow They want to get better and they want to feel like they're moving ahead in some way in life. And so the more you can provide that, the more likely you are to be effective these days. How does that relate to communications and relationships? Well, fundamentally, it's taking an interest in the other person and being curious and wondering what are they looking for? Where are they right now in their skills and career development? Where do they want to be? What could be some useful learning experiences? What feedback is going to be important for them to get? Let's say they're going to be at the same level because organizations are flatter and flatter for quite some time. How can you create growth or enriching experiences for them to go forward? So this, it's not an obvious thing necessarily. It's not always clear how this will occur, But to be able to have a series of those conversations, to be patient, to revisit them again and again, I think is really the key 
for managers and leaders right now. And Michael, you have in your writings talked a lot about listening and the podcast as well. It seems to me the need for listening skills is one of those things that everybody knows, right? Be a good listener. And parents would talk about you've been given one mouth and two ears. That should suggest (laughs) some sort of hierarchy there. But we also know from a lot of recent research that brain chemistry itself gets in the way. A lot of our social media culture gets in the way of that. Michael, I saw some research that indicates that in everyday face-to-face conversations, people talk about themselves about 60% of the time. And that in social media, not surprising, it's even higher. It's about 80%. That's a rut that I think professionals and managers can get into. If you've got this social norm and you've got the brain chemistry working at you to not listen fully, is that an area where you think that people can improve? And do you have some tips and guidelines so that managers and professionals can break out of that and begin to hone their active listening skills? Sure. Well, the research is very disturbing and quite powerful. I'm sure that those statistics are correct. People profess to believe listening is important. They tend to underestimate how terrible they are at listening. And this is at every level. Listening in some ways requires you to manage your own ego right? Because if you're listening, you're not not talking. If you're listening, somebody else has a floor. If you're listening, you're not providing brilliant solutions that will impress everybody and make them like you. Listening does require a real willingness to put the spotlight on somebody else. And that's kind of how I think about listening. So listening doesn't mean you're entirely silent. In active listening, you may be talking, you may be repeating back, you may be asking for confirmation, you may even be asking additional questions, but you're maintaining the spotlight on the other person. You're you're honoring their thinking process and you're trying to facilitate it rather than simply waiting for them to stop talking so that you can talk. That's number one. Number two, Real listening is about presence. It means being present for the conversation. It means for that hour or 10 minutes or one minute, you're actually there, you're focused, and your mind is not elsewhere. That has always been a little bit of a difficult task for most people. It's gotten worse with the constant barrage of interruptions caused by technology and social media and the kind of semi-legitimacy that all that has, right? So if you get a bunch of messages and alerts and whatever, you could choose to say, oh, well, I'm so important and essential and I must respond immediately. That's why I can't listen. I think that's kind of fake. I don't think that 95% of those are really all that necessary. So I do think that you have to see value in listening and then you have to really try to be present. And, And then there are some other techniques just related to active listening that people can learn fairly easily. But that's how I would frame the whole thing. Michael, and to all the message managers listening, I thought that was a very prescient point that you made that active listening is not synonymous with silence. It can be other things that you're doing, even while speaking or just your level of presence that keeps the spotlight on the other person and advances them and advances the conversation. That's excellent. I would also add increases their comfort level. So if you're sitting there with arms folded, staring at the ground while somebody is 
telling you something, <laughs> that's not really a signal to them that it's super safe for them to keep talking or that you're actually interested. Unfold your arms, you know, look at them from time to time. You don't have to maintain constant eye contact. There are a lot of nonverbal behaviors that we have that either make it easier or more difficult for somebody to not just share what they have, but continue thinking and expounding and, and exploring what's in their head. Um, because we don't always get it out in the first sentence. The great thing about active listening is that really two people are helping one person express themselves um, through this support and summation and further questioning. It's not a deposition. <laughs> I don't know the exact uh, data on this. I just know a, kind of a general finding and I've seen the research on it, that time, say, if you, Michael, were in a, a conversation, if you were talking less than half of the time, but you were also doing the things of, of showing your presence and agreement and interest during that, even the fact that you were talking less than half the time, the other person would consistently say, Michael is a brilliant conversationalist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, just from setting that right environment. And a great job candidate, if you can do that too. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I'll throw down a challenge. Wow. I'll throw down a challenge for your listeners. Let's hear yeah. it. Yeah. Try to, in, in your next couple of conversations, try to speak 20% of the time and let the other person have 80% of the airtime. That is the standard we aim for in coaching. I can't say that I often get there myself since I'm pretty extroverted and like to talk, but I'm aware of it. I guarantee that if you can have a few conversations where you are following the 2080 rule, not only will other people react better, but you will find that you're learning a lot more and that your own thinking is improving. Because here's the other thing about, about listening and being a manager or leader. It's not just about making the other person feel comfortable and helping them develop. So much of leadership is a type of critical thinking, right? It's There's so many things going on. There are so many different factors. What do I choose to focus on? How do I put them all together? It's almost deciding as much what not to notice as it is what to notice. So the more you are listening particularly in the early stages of any conversation or meeting, the more likely you are to be able to put factors together in a compelling, holistic way and figure out what are really going to be the most effective levers for helping your team or, or business move forward. I will attempt your challenge as well. <laughs> and for everyone, we'll put that as part of our show notes. It would be a very interesting and powerful exercise. I wanted Michael to come back a few years ago you wrote a book called The Creative Lawyer, which is a really interesting title. And it was a, a very important uh, accomplishment for you in the track of your career. I know we have some attorneys in this audience, but I also suspect there's some larger points too. Lawyers are notorious. They're notorious for lots of things. <laughs> uh, but among them is a rather stale language about themselves and their practices. And for my attorney friends out there, you know this to be true. One of the reviews that I saw, though, for your book, The Creative Lawyer, came from your friend Gretchen Rubin, who herself is a wonderful author and, and podcaster on the subject of happiness. She said this about your book, quote, it is delivered in unlawyer-like, concise, and entertaining prose, end quote. I will infer from that, lawyer-like prose must be non-concise and non-entertaining. Have you advised lawyers on how to talk about themselves and when you're coaching across 
professionals and in different fields, how best do we represent our expertise without being full of ourselves, without violating the challenge for conversation that you just laid out for us? Well, Jim, as my shrink used to say, you have said a lot. <laughs> There's a lot. I'll now uh, allow 80% of, of space here for you to reply. <laughs> you said a lot. There's a lot packed in there. In no particular order, when we're talking about ourselves, lawyers or anybody else, when we're answering the question, what do you do, or trying to describe ourselves or meeting a potential contact, I think for most people, the real issue isn't that they are sounding full of themselves. It's quite the opposite. It's that they don't want to sound full of themselves. So they tend to provide a really bland, uninteresting, generalized way of describing their careers that often can use insider language. And it, it just doesn't lead to any kind of interesting conversation. But I think in most cases, it's because they don't want to be obnoxious. They don't want to be a pushy, glad hander. But the problem is they end up really boring and then nobody really wants to talk any further. So when I work with lawyers or any other type of client on communications, a lot of what we're doing is just exploring, well, what is the universe of things you could talk about that relates to describing yourself, right? It could be what you do. It could be the type of work you do, the brands you have under your belt in terms of where you work or gone to school or what have you. It could be the problems you solve. It could be the types of clients you work with. It could be what you really enjoy about your work, what makes your day. It could be something that you're working on right now that's sort of interesting. And to mine that a little bit and then play around with it so that you can find different ways to introduce yourselves because that's really what we're talking about. The elevator pitch or positioning statement is fundamentally just the first thing you say. It's not the only thing you say, but you want to try to lead into a kind of interesting direction. So Michael, are there some other elements then when we're representing ourselves and not trying to be, as you say, it's more bland or maybe not pointed enough, not value-based enough, are there other elements in how professionals should be representing themselves? Let me say something about lawyers and certain other professions. So lawyers are the number one most unhappy profession in the US. Number two is doctors. So there, there goes all that parental planning on having a dream career. <laughs> but of course, both of these sets of people are among the top maybe 2% educated percentile of the US. So you have to ask well, how is it that people who have so much going for them don't seem to, in general, feel happy about that? And one idea I have is that there are certain industries where there's a kind of negative lingua franca that is spoken. If you are a lawyer, and I used to be a lawyer for a while, and you meet any other lawyers, if you adopt a sort of mildly cynical tone you'll be understood as normal. Like no one's going to say like, God, what, what is that guy's problem that he's so dark? No, it's just kind of normal. Like what do you do? Oh, I'm a lawyer. What, oh, mergers, M&A, oh, securities. Oh, no. You know, it's, it's just a sort of boring thing, but it's almost socially acceptable. But the thing is 
there are lots of careers that have that. For example, journalists are notoriously cynical. The Foreign Service of the United States, State Department, super cynical even 30 years ago and probably even more so now. There are spots of this in a lot of other careers. And what I discovered at a certain point was that just because there's like this inherited language that people have doesn't mean you should use it. And it certainly doesn't mean that it's actually serving you. Because when I was a lawyer, to the extent that I adopted that kind of tone, it wasn't getting me anywhere. It wasn't making me happier. And it wasn't connecting me with people who were interested in useful things. So I think that one thing anybody can ask is, how do people normally talk in my field? And um, is that how I want to be talking? Maybe it totally works for you. But I think there's a good chance that you may choose to use a somewhat more optimistic, positive, even cheerful, uh, curious way of speaking. And parenthetically, when I came up with this idea of writing this book, which is essentially a self-coaching book for lawyers, I was thinking, well, how do I really want to make a contribution? And I decided more than anything else, it was going to be through the tone of the book. It wasn't going to be tendentious. It wasn't going to be sad. It wasn't going to be dark or cynical. I wanted something much more light and fresh and practical and optimistic. And that was kind of my guiding lens, if you will, as I wrote it. And I think that's what Gretchen picked up on. To take this beyond uh, even conversation, but a whole career path, career progression. And coming back to when we originally began the conversation and talking about review, goal setting, being aware of those things that give you energy and that are valuable to you. I uh, picked out something about career progress that you wrote, and I'll quote, and it gets to what you were just talking about. Career progress usually does not come from logical analysis, and it's not just lawyers. Academics, bankers, journalists, scientists, and consultants create the same problems for themselves. Michael, you and I are both MBAs, professionals trained in logical analysis. We have a lot of our listeners that are in the same boat. So what's the issue in terms of progress and happiness that might be counter to logical analysis, or at least the tradition of that? You don't typically figure out what you want to do with your life or for your next chapter based on logic, because it may be unpredictable. There may be a lot of different things that might appeal to you or ultimately not appeal to you. Most importantly, great ideas rarely announce themselves as great ideas. It might start out as a glimmer, as a hunch, as a kind of feeling, as a kooky experience you had one day. It's like a new idea will often start out as a little green shoot, a tendril. And if you turn on this 10,000 watt light of analysis on it, it is just going to shrivel up and die because it can't prove anything yet. You need to coax it out. Therefore, the way that you tend to get places is through experimentation. Okay, that seems interesting. Let me figure out how I can learn more about that. Let me take a step in that direction. Let me talk to some more, some more people. Let me go to a conference. Let me do a project on this before I do a whole career. Let me go talk to that person who's so different from anybody else I've ever talked to. And it's in this manner that you gather the data that helps you 
figure out what you're going to do next. If you're too analytical about it, you can either think of a lot of reasons why it won't work, or you can create this kind of logical structure that is very detached from reality and is not really based on actual data and is almost more like a a psychological projection of what you want to do rather than a, a real kind of career. So I always push people to design experiments, get more data, play around a little bit, and be open to the idea that real progress is a zigzag. It could be two steps forward, a step back, a step sideways, a leap forward, and that's really how it works. You can't logic your way into <laughs> into it fully, I guess. Michael, you have a new book coming out called 20 Minutes a Day, The New Approach to Achieving Career Satisfaction and Success. Interesting. What can you share about the new book? When I wrote The Creative Lawyer, the number one comment I heard was, hey, how come this is just for lawyers? This is for everybody because you know 90% of the content and exercises are relevant to other people. And for a long time, I wanted to figure out a way to broaden the reach and also continue working with ideas I had. And the 20 Minutes a Day book, it's fundamentally based on the idea of career wellness. Right now, we have a medical model of careers. You deal with your career when you have a problem. You need a new job, or you hate the one you have, or you're moving, or you didn't get promoted, or you got promoted in something you don't want, so you have to go fix it. And then people start networking and doing personality tests and talking to people. But wouldn't it be better if we had more of a wellness approach where we worked on things on an ongoing basis so that we're constantly developing our skills and insight and we're more prepared for any changes should they occur. That's the basic idea. And the 20 minutes a day concept is that you don't have a lot of time every day, but you can pull out 20 minutes. And that's when you focus on the things that relate to working on your career, not, not in your career, developing your relationships, digging more into your values, creating experiments, thinking about future directions, uh, building up skills that may not have anything to do with your current job. And it's like compound interest. If you do this regularly, you're going to be much more powerful than if you wait till a kind of crisis point or until you feel like you have enough time and then you're going to devote you know, a huge chunk of time to it. That's basically the idea. Excellent. Michael, how can people learn more about you and learn from you and the kind of work that you do with clients? Number one, listen to my podcast. Meanwhile, the title, by the way, refers to the idea that we're always waiting for some free period of time to work on ourselves. But my idea is that you can work on yourself. Meanwhile, everything else is going on. You don't have to wait for a special time. You can just Google my name. You'll find a number of articles that I've written on different types of topics that you might find of interest. Right now, we tend to work with companies on executive coaching and leadership development. And you can also find more about that at our company's website, which is nextstepartners.com. Michael, was it, I think, the John Lennon line, something that uh, life is what happens while you were busy making other plans? Yes, good. I think we have the same cultural reference. We don't have to be too specific about where those come from, but yeah. I, I heard we, it somewhere from some famous person who from may some have famous been, old. I think from an older person you heard it. Yeah, someone <laughs> even older than I. So oh, yeah. uh, we'll, we'll check that out. Our research department will include that um, as well as everything else that will be in the show notes. Michael Melcher, thank you for joining us. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, then please make sure to join our growing list of subscribers so you don't miss an episode. And if you would, please take a short moment to rate and review. That helps more professionals learn about the podcast. For more insights you can use in your business, I offer the Message Manager Memo. That's a free weekly email with practical tips. It's a short read, a couple of minutes, and I believe that you'll enjoy having that. You can sign up at jimcarr.com, K-A-R-R-H. And if you have any ideas for the podcast or the Message Manager Memo, or if you would like to talk about opportunities, I might speak to your organization or perhaps work with your team, you can email me directly at jim at jimcard.com. Until next time, thank you, Michael Melcher, and thank you, Message Managers. Thanks for having me on. It's been really fun. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.